This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book and is number 34 of the series entitled The Form of Sound Words. Those of you who are using these tape recordings and have the little card in front of you will see that salvation is the one that we should take next. But we are taking today sanctification and asking you to realise that salvation has been given a longer exposition and we refer you to numbers 436 to 441, six studies in which salvation is given far more treatment than, than we can do here. So there is nothing omitted really, it's merely a matter of referring you to a fuller exposition. So today we are looking at another word which is most important and not too easy to understand. Sanctification, holiness, they, they go together. When we think of God, we think of God who is righteous, we think of God who is holy. And in John 17, as my memory serves me right, our Saviour says, Righteous Father, Holy Father. Ultimately, I suppose there's no, no difference between absolute spotless righteousness and absolute spotless holiness. But God has to stoop and give us a look in the garden because we are dealing with terms that are so far beyond our everyday understanding. We do use the word righteous and just in things of daily life, but we seldom use the word holy and sanctify in the things of daily life. And so it's necessary that figures have to be adopted. We might say, of course, that ultimately the white robes of righteousness which we find mentioned in one part of scripture and the white robes of those who have washed them white and made them clean in the blood of the Lamb in another part of scripture they represent ultimately the complete access the complete acceptance of the believer in Christ. Whether there's any final distinction between righteousness and holiness we may have to wait and see. But God has been pleased to say that if you contemplate meeting him as a judge with a law court in view, there is no condemnation. And if you think about him as one who is in his holy temple, there is no exclusion. And one has to do with the obedience that was necessary to the law which we never could render and the other the cleansing and the separation and the difference that had to be put between one thing and another which is associated with sanctification. If you will turn to the Psalm 51 you may get a consciousness of some distinction there that David speaking about himself in that great confession where he had sinned so badly, and yet found forgiveness. But you will notice that he says, in verse 1, Have mercy upon me, O God, 
according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me through. You notice the two, they're joined together. Blot out has reference to an account. If you open the book, you find it's cancelled. The debt's been paid. It's completely blotted out. But the wash me has to do not with righteousness, it's to do with holiness. Uh, there's a feeling of being unfit for the holy presence. But ultimately it's possible that life, justification, sanctification, they all meet together as one at the end. Because life is opposite to death and corruption and justification is opposite to the failure to uh, conform to God's will and holiness has to do with complete sanctifying, complete separation from evil unto God. Well, let us see whether we can get some guidance with regard to this. The first occurrence of sanctification goes right back to Genesis chapter 2 and has nothing to do with an individual person. Uh, but inasmuch as it's the first occurrence, it might be wise just to give it a word, give it a, a moment before we pass to other usages. It says in chapter 2 of Genesis, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made, and God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. He sanctified it. He set that day apart and onwards through the Old Testament right up to the present or right up to near the present time there was a strong insistence upon keeping the Sabbath day holy. We belong to a calling where instead of keeping one day holy we're expected to keep the lot. It's not that we have a lower standard it's that we have a higher one. But in these early days when Israel were being taught, one day was set apart for God in which ordinary work was not done and so on to make it very distinctive. Another way in which God, through the Old Testament scriptures, sought, as it were, to teach this very, very difficult subject was the way he used the word holy in connection with the people of Israel. Now, some of you may at another time in another study have seen a chart that we have a series of concentric circles so will you imagine a whole series of circles one within another and the first circle is a holy land well now the land of Palestine is no different from the land adjoining it in Jordan or Mesopotamia in fact it may not be so good for all I know a shovelful brought over and sent to one of the laboratories, they wouldn't know it was holy. But it was holy because God had separated that land from all other lands to himself for his own purposes. Well, in that holy land, he put a people called a holy nation. Now you say, well, if they were a holy nation, save me. Ah, it wasn't because they themselves were better than you and me. They were separated by God from all the families on the earth 
for his distinctive purpose. Now you say, I see, well now this holy nation is living in a holy land. Oh, that's not enough. What's next? God chose out of that holy nation one tribe, the tribe of Levi, and they were a holy tribe, and they were able to have access to God. They could touch the holy garments and the furniture of the tabernacle, which was forbidden to another. But that's not all. Not all. Another circle. That holy tribe had one holy family, the family of Aaron, and they were the priests, and they went into the holy place and ministered in the tabernacle. You say, oh, that, oh it's not enough here. One more. One man. Now let's get it. One man out of a holy family, out of a holy tribe, out of a holy nation, out of a holy land. One man went into the presence of God once a year, not without blood and uh, incense, lest he die. Don't you see the way in which God emphasised that you do not press into his presence without respect. Now, we have access by grace. We are accepted in the beloved. So whatever was demanded in the Old Testament ritual has been completely satisfied by the work of Christ. Now the word, particularly this word we're dealing with, has as its basic meaning to separate. So should we just see in what way that has to have a bearing upon this thought. Leviticus chapter 20. Leviticus chapter 20. Uh, wait a minute, no, where am I? It says here in verse um, 24 of the uh, 20th chapter of Leviticus, But I have said unto you, ye shall inherit their land, and I will give it unto you to possess it, a land that floweth with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, which have separated you from other people. Now this is the use of the word that gives us the word sanctify and holy. I have separated you from other people. Ye shall therefore put a difference. Here's the word holiness again, or sanctify. Put a difference between clean beasts and unclean. Now God created all the beasts. And if you were to examine a pig, you would discover that its anatomy is nearer to that of the human than any other animal that walks on four legs. But God said the swine and those of its character were unclean. They must not be used in any sacrifice. So he's beginning to give them pictures, that which distinguishes one from another. You will make a difference then between clean beasts and unclean, between unclean fowls and clean. And you shall not make your souls abominable by beast or by fowl, or by any manner of living thing that creepeth on the ground, which I have separated from you as unclean. 
and ye shall be holy unto me. For I the Lord am holy, and have severed you from other people, that you should be mine. Now those were altered as time went on. The Apostle Paul writing about what what, what are we going to do uh, with regard to clean beasts and unclean beasts. Well he said there's nothing unclean of itself. It's only because of this uh, typical distinction. So eat, asking no question for conscience sake. But if one of your brethren is not so well instructed, is a bit upset because you do not discriminate, oh well for his sake, not your own. But just put that aside. So you see, it was typical, not, not in basic, not basic, typical. Well now that's the underlying thought of something which is not um, acceptable to God and you'll find that in the Acts of the Apostles, the 10th chapter, uh, Peter has that in mind, still this fact that he belonged to the separated nation and the Gentiles were unclean in his estimation. Chapter 10 of the Acts of the Apostles. We find a man who is a, a centurion. <coughs> his name is Cornelius. He's called a devout man and one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. Well, I think that's a good description of if, if everybody who came to this chapel, myself included, could be described in the book of God as devout, one that feared God with all his house, gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always, well, he's fairly well on, isn't he? And yet, when that man came into the presence of Peter, Peter looked him up and down, and he said, verse uh, 28, You know how it is an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company or come unto one of another nation. That was his attitude up to that moment. But God has shown me <coughs> that I should not call any man common or unclean. Well, that shows that he would have, would have called him common and unclean had he not had the vision beforehand. However, we can teach that the church began at Pentecost with Peter and in chapter 10, long afterwards, he looked at the Gentile, drew himself away and said, I would have called you common and unclean apart from this vision. Well, I don't know. That's not for me to decide. So you see, we've got this aspect now in the scriptures. Something separated. Something dealing with uncleanness. Something that has to remember the holiness of the God we serve. Well now, I don't know whether we can uh, plough into all the different ways in which this is used. I think not. But shall we look at one or two passages now? For instance, let's come to the epistle to the Ephesians and see where sanctification comes in that epistle. In the first chapter, it's a part of the original purpose of God in our calling. Chapter 1, verse 4. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be. Now that's the purpose, isn't it? That we should be. What? Holy. And without blame. Before him in love. Without blame is without blemish. 
Not so much blame, but without blemish. And the word is used in the Old Testament of the sacrificial animals. If you read the description, an animal that was going to be offered to God must be carefully examined by the priest. It must not have any spot. It must have no blemish. It mustn't have any superfluous parts. It mustn't have anything missing. It must be perfect to be accepted. Well, how many of us could say that we are in that category? Must be perfect. But here, God chose us that we should be. Well, you know how that has been brought about by the work of Christ. We have in chapter 2 the access, and we have in chapter 5 another reference to this question of being sanctified. It says that Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, verse, six, verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse. You see, that they go together. Justify and blot out the account. Sanctify and cleanse. Sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. So it's not water now that cleanses you. It's the word of God that cleanses you. And our Saviour said the same thing to his disciples. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. So the washings in water that we have in the Old Testament were only a symbol. We don't carry the symbol now, we've got the reality. And if I'm doing my job properly, you who are listening to me are being cleansed by the word. It should have that effect continuously revealing some hidden spot and revealing the way in which God has dealt with it through Christ so that we stand accepted. That he might present it to himself not merely a glorious church but a church in glory comes to the same thing perhaps not having spot. So here's a definition of in glory not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Now you can understand the beauty of holiness, a word used in the Old Testament, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Well, there we have the statement, and this is the very description given of our Saviour, if you will turn to the uh, first of Peter, The first of Peter, where he says, verse 18, chapter 1, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. Now there's the wonder of it. Without blemish and without spot is said of Christ. Without blemish and without spot is spoken of as his, of his people, his church. And it's utterly beyond our ability to make ourselves acceptable to that standard. Do what we will. But what we couldn't do, grace has done. And so we stand accepted in the beloved. Now let's take one or two other passages that might help us 
the epistle to the Romans, don't turn to it, because I'm only speaking about that in contrast or comparison with Hebrews. The epistle to the Romans is stamped with the word righteousness, that God might be just. The epistle to the Hebrews is stamped with the word holiness and sanctifying. The figure of, of the Romans is a judge and an accuser and condemnation and a saviour. The figure in Hebrews is a temple or a tabernacle and a priest and a cleansing. So here we have in chapter 8 of Hebrews. Now the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. The apostle is halfway through the epistle and he stops the sum up because we are very much given to letting it go one in one ear and out the other. He says, I want to make it, make it clear to you what I've been trying to say. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. A minister of the sanctuary. Now this word sanctuary is the holy place. It's the same word that gives us the word sanctify. And the sanctuary was a set apart place. No one could enter it or leave it apart from those who were set apart by God, as we've already seen. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle. When you come across the word true, it doesn't always mean in opposite to that which is false. It means opposite to that which is a type. When Christ said, I am the true vine, he didn't mean to say that there were no vines growing in the, in the ground in Palestine. There were. But he said, there are only types of me. He said, I am the true bread. But he didn't say there was no manna that fell in the wilderness. He said, oh, your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and they're dead. I am the true bread. I'm the one that's the real thing that was a type. So, he's a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, <coughs> which the Lord pitched, and not man. And so we discover that this refers to the heavens, chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. Fancy having a worldly sanctuary. That's simply because it was a type and a shadow. For there was a tabernacle made, and then it tells you uh, about the furniture and about the second veil, but even that worldly sanctuary had to be treated with respect. Verse 7, But unto the second part of that tabernacle went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood. That was to impress upon this people the holiness of the God they served. And you may know that they even added to this. They tied a rope round the ankle of the high priest so that should he die in the presence of God, they could get him out without themselves becoming involved in the holiest of all. So we have no sort of trifling in the presence of God. No unholy familiarity. And nevertheless, unless we reach this standard, we'll never see him. Makes your heart sink, doesn't it? Until you remember, it's included. All included in the gift of his Son. For he has made us meet for the inheritance of the saints, saints in the light. We may not know what we need to, to, to 
be neat, to be complete for the inheritance. But don't let that worry us. For two reasons. One thing, if we did, we couldn't provide it. And the other thing is, we never know, but God has done it. It's all in Christ. And so we have that. Well then, one other passage while we're dealing with this, chapter 10, verse 11 onwards. And every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Now that's the Old Testament type. That's the scripture speaking about scripture. But, all the contrast, this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever. You see, that makes it utterly impossible for me or for you to contemplate union with the Church of Rome. For they maintain that the priest offers a sacrifice to God every time they have Mass. To me, that's utter blasphemy. One offering never to be repeated is what Scripture says. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, forever, sat down. Now you see, the strong emphasis in chapter 8 was, we have a priest who is sitting. Now why the emphasis upon sitting? Well, it says in the earlier part of chapter 10, that the ordinary priest never sat down in connection with his work. Never. There was no provision. The only one who ever sat down as a priest was the Son of God. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. From henceforth expecting to these enemies we made his footstool, for by one offering he hath perfected unto perpetuity. It's the strongest term for eternity that the New Testament knows. It's not merely the word age, which is translated forever. He hath perfected unto perpetuity. That's justification. And that's sanctification combined together. And that's the position that every redeemed child of God has by the work of Christ and the love of God. Them that are sanctified. Now if you will look at uh, verse 1, it's an opportunity to correct one little uh, piece in the authorised version. 1 of chapter 10. I'll read what it says in the authorised version first. For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. Well, in a measure, if you offer anything year by year, you do it continually, don't you? Well, you might say, oh, well, this is done to emphasise it. But this is exactly the same construction and word that we've already had just now. Perfected unto perpetuity. The word continually goes with the word perfected. Shall we read it again? For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, make the comers thereunto perfect unto perpetuity, for then would they not have ceased to be offered. But they go on being offered, so that they're only a type and a shadow. So we've drawn attention to one or two passages 
And although, as I said, it's an exceedingly difficult thing to distinguish between ultimately righteousness and holiness, they may be two sides of one thing. I remember many years ago doing what might have been thought a very venturesome thing in Aberdeen. You know what the Aberdeen folks speak about themselves, don't you? I offered, I put a half a crown on the, on my hand like that in Aberdeen. And I said, anyone could come and take it. Or they, I said, wait a minute, there's a condition. You can take that half a crown if you can take one side only. I was safe, wasn't I? Even in Aberdeen. Well, I believe it's true with regard to righteousness and holiness. They do not really, they are not really separated ultimately. A person who is absolutely and spotlessly righteous will be absolutely and spotlessly separated out of God and clean, or vice versa. But God has stooped to give us various images, to emphasise various phases. And um, I'll come back now to the passage we read earlier in uh, John 13. You remember the dif- difference that I drew between hath been saved, and then rinsed. Let's come back again before we finish this survey. And before we turn to, or before we actually read that passage again in John 13, I remind you the same John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus Christ God's Son cleanseth us from all sin. So there's a provision made. You don't have to pretend that you're spotless. You're not. But there's a provision made. So now, once more we notice. Peter, first of all, said he'd never allow Christ to do such a thing. And then when he discovered, the Lord said, you'll have no part with me if I don't. Oh, then he went the other extreme. And he said, oh no, you're wrong again, Peter. But there's one thing about Peter, he blurts out the things that we think and don't say. So, that's good. So he said, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. He wouldn't mind going through it again and again, rather than be separated from his Lord, which was good. And then our Saviour gave him a correction. Jesus says to him, he that hath been bathed. Now anyone who's come to Christ, has been completely bathed as a part of the process. The washing of the water by the word goes on day by day. But the one complete bathing has taken place. But you're in this world and this world has got plenty of filth about it and you're walking through it. So that you have only a need, not merely to wash, you see, if you get the, if you get the word, um, wash twice, you're apt to think they're the same word in the original. They're not. He that hath been washed completely needeth not say to rinse his feet, but is clean every whit. Isn't it something to be thankful for that we have no dread of standing in that holy presence. We have no need for a cloud of incense. 
We have no need for the sprinkling of blood. We have no need for the water of separation that is sprinkled upon us. And the contrast is brought about, and I think we'll finish with that, by a passage in the epistle to the Hebrews, where he picks up the story from the Old Testament and applies it to ourselves. Chapter uh, chapter 9, verse 11. But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, so there's all the types being set aside, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if, here it comes, if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an ephah sprinkling the unclean sanctify to the purifying of the flesh, that's all it could do, as a type, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience. See, it tells you that the offerings that were made year by year, chapter 10, verse 2, for then would they not have ceased to be offered because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. A conscience that's cleansed. If God has forgotten your sin, so may you. And God says he has. He's cast them behind his back. He's buried them in the depths of the sea and various other figures. So it says here, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now I'm very conscious that it's a difficult subject both for me and for you, but as it's a part of our calling and as it's a consequence of the work of Christ, give it all the attention that you can so that you make these things your own. For it is written, without holiness, no man shall see God. It is written, our God is a consuming fire. And that's written to believers. But we need have no fear if we are covered and cleansed as we read in these passages righteousness and sanctification, two sides of one whole. White robes of righteousness and white robes of those who will wash them white and made them clean in the blood of the Lamb, show you that ultimately righteousness and holiness have met together and our position in Christ is perfect acceptance. What a gospel. What a position. What a truth to know. What an incentive to try to walk worthy of such a calling. But what a need for grace to do it in this world not only in this world, but what we are in it. But God knows, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, I have a feeling that the next word is a continual present, a little bit different from the ordinary present, 
And the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, goes on cleansing us. Goes on. Washing the feet, washing the feet, washing the feet, that you're clean every whit. So may our walk, washing the feet, be more in harmony with our standing, clean every whit, as the days go by.